Welcome to Insurance Uncovered, the first podcast to bring you insurance news and an inside perspective from thought leaders in the property casualty insurance industry. Insurance Uncovered is produced by the National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies. Hello, everyone. I'm Kathy Imus. Today, we're uncovering the wide world of insurance. NAMIC's Michelle Rogers shares the latest on the international developments affecting the U.S. regulatory front. Plus, the Terrorism Risk Insurance Act is up for reauthorization in 2020. The proactive move by Congress to prevent a lapse in coverage. And the release of FEMA flood data, how this move helps insurers wanting to enter the private flood market. The Senate Banking Committee held its first hearing on the Terrorism Risk Insurance Act reauthorization last week. Witnesses all agreed on the need to reauthorize without delay, unlike in 2014 when Congress allowed TRIA to actually expire for a 12-day period. That created substantial disruption in the commercial insurance market. New Jersey Democratic Senator Robert Menendez summed up the critical nature of TRIA during his comments at the hearing. One thing about terrorism, as someone who uh, offered all of the 9-11 Commission's recommendations into law when I was in the House of Representatives, is that We do not know what the next form of terrorism is going to be or its magnitude. Uh, We never thought that an airplane, something used for civilian travel, would become a weapon of mass destruction. Uh, We never thought that maybe cargo coming into a port could ultimately have a dirty bomb. We never thought that an envelope uh, laced with anthrax could be a deadly weapon. So the iterations of what this is, is always beyond even as we think ahead and try to prevent. It's a challenge. So uh, I think it's a very unique one. I I mean, in order to obtain a real estate or commercial loan, banks often um, generally require clients to obtain terrorism coverage. Without terrorism risk insurance, businesses lose out on essential financing options. And I think allowing TRIA to lapse or injecting uncertainty in the process can have serious economic consequences. NAMIC welcomed the decision by the Senate Banking Committee to hold a hearing on TRIA reauthorization 18 months prior to its 2020 expiration date. This hearing helps lay the groundwork for what we hope will be an expeditious reauthorization process, resulting in a long-term extension of the TRIA program without substantive alteration. The National Flood Insurance Program is one step closer to a long-term reauthorization. Members of the House Financial Services Committee unanimously approved two pieces of legislation to move the program forward. The first would extend NFIP through September 2024 and improve accuracy of flood maps, increase mitigation, and address affordability. The second piece of legislation reforms the NFIP's Write Your Own program and claims litigation. Across the Capitol, the path forward is less clear as senators from flood-prone areas are already signaling they have some concerns, but not about what is included. What is not included in the House package is their concern. Given this landscape, NAMIC feels that pressure on the Senate from both the House and the industry to pass the House package may represent the best path forward to securing a long-term reauthorization of the program. Private carriers now have access to NFIP loss data. The Federal Emergency Management Agency announced the release of its claims and policy information on its open FEMA platform. This allows insurers to access more than 2 million claims records dating back to 1978 and more than 47 million policy records for transactions over the last 10 years. 
Insurance regulation goes far beyond the Canadian and U.S. borders that typically represent NAMIC's membership. From Europe to Asia to South America and all around the world, global insurance regulation can have major implications for the mutual industry. On today's Unscripted, our Chuck Chamnis sat down with NAMIC's international regulations expert, Michelle Rogers, to discuss the latest on international developments affecting the U.S. market. Well, today's guest on Insurance Unscripted is a real treat. She's right here from our NAMIC staff. It's Michelle Rogers, NAMIC's number one world traveler. Technically, Michelle, you are Assistant Vice President for International and Regulatory Affairs. Yes, that's right. Thank you. Well, Michelle, welcome. Good to be here with you when our paths cross in Indianapolis. That's right. It's, it's not that common that it happens. <laughs> it's not. but. Uh, we scheduled this and so we made it happen and really the topic today as you might expect is to hear from Michelle about um, kind of the international developments that matter to our members as, as you know I think our listeners know you know our, uh, our membership is a domestic US membership uh, the vast majority of our members do not do business anywhere outside the US though we do have some that do some that are, have quite a large international presence a few but our greatest concern I'd say from our members perspective is what kind of international developments are affecting our US regulatory environment I think that's where we'll spend most of our time today so again Michelle welcome yes. thank you so can you describe um, maybe beyond what I just did or with a little more uh, precision um, why we're involved in in sending you to uh, Buenos Aires and Kuala Lumpur and faraway places, but places that have a real impact on our U.S. regulatory structure. All right. Well, it all started probably shortly after the financial crisis. There was a lot of attention internationally on what happened with AIG, and that um, scenario then ended up resulting in a lot of um, view from the, from the G20, um, looking at what kinds of things should be done to make sure this doesn't happen again. And um, so from that standpoint, most recently, we have seen engagement from our DC, um, our DC actors, as from the insurance, um, the, the Treasury Secretary um, Mnuchin, as well as state commissioners um, are involved in this issue. So overall, you can say that this is an issue that's impacting us at all levels, um, Washington state as well as internationally. And it already has. I mean, we've seen, again, using the financial crisis as kind of the tipping point and for legitimate reasons. Regulators here in the U.S. looked at AIG as the example, a poster child mm -hmm. for the financial crisis from our industry's perspective and said, there were whole units of AIG that we really had no insight to at all. Uh, that helped bring in enhanced holding company regulation, which is now part of the U.S. reality. Right. Um, Orsa has yes. been a big development in the past few years. It's affected, you know, most all of our companies in and some way. And corporate governance. And corporate governance. And now, mm -hmm. you know, maybe I can fast forward to some of the issues we have around capital and group supervision because mm -hmm. that seems to be Kind of the leading edge uh, international development that right. will over time in some way affect us in an area where you're quite engaged. It's developing not only through the IIS, and maybe you should give us a definition of how they okay. kind of fit together sure. and what our U.S. regulators do there, and then what capital changes are coming, and then the covered agreement also has the effect on um, group supervision and, and capital yes, at some does. level, but kind of on a separate track. Well, 
as I said earlier, this all kind of started with the G20 recognizing a problem and then making a, a, an edict that all financial regulation worldwide should be relatively similar. G20 being the leaders, like our president mm -hmm. of the 20 largest or right. most developed uh, The financial ministers, GDP. yes, the top 20 nations, right. right. And um, the financial ministers from the G20 then started working with a group called the Financial Stability Board, which we refer to as the FSB. The Financial Stability Board has at most three representatives from each of the G20 countries. And we have, our Treasury Secretary is on the FSB, um, our, the SEC Secretary and the Federal Reserve Chair serve on the FSB. And so various committees within that organization are sort of the enforcers of what the, the G20 wants to have happen. Underneath the FSB, there are is um, a number of standard setters, and one being that's most important to us is the IAIS, the International Association of Insurance Supervisors. And that organization has um, representatives from NAIC, state commissioners, as well as the Treasury, for, represented by FIO, um, and then the Federal Reserve as well. So they all are active at the IAIS as well. But one thing of importance is that that organization has been dominated by the European Union because each of their members can, are counted as countries and that doesn't necessarily happen in the U.S. Um, yeah. In each fact, of, that's a stat we use right. occasionally, which is if you were to count each U.S. state as a country measured like those European countries are and other countries around the world, 26 of the top 50 insurance markets would be U.S. states. That's exactly right. And so we, we have a lot of power and a lot of influence, but we don't have the ability to, to, make, um, to make the decision on our own. So we have to win over other, other potential countries in, to our way of thinking. Can I add one more thing that I view of as part of the context here is that the EU, uh, I'd say get the uh, kind of reputation as the cool kids because for a decade, 12 years, they developed their own new system of insurance regulation That's called Solvency right. II. They rolled it out, what, three years ago, was it? Four? 2016. So three yeah. years ago, uh, it was implemented finally, and so theirs is the latest, coolest. Ours is state regulation, which is unlike any other country in the world. Um, a little awkward, old, very mm -hmm. um, durable, time-tested, stress-tested. So while we know it works well, it doesn't, um, it's hard to recommend it as the world's uh, insurance regulatory solution. But I think our system has some real advantages. And, um, and I will say that there are other countries in the world that use a risk-based capital approach as well to capital. So we're not alone in that. And especially smaller developing countries, they're not excited about enacting a system that's like Solvency II. They don't have the resources. So we have some we have some opportunities. Um, I think that our regulatory environment is considered very strong for the data we're able to collect, the examination process. There's a lot we do in the U.S. that they don't do. And the other big point I like to make is that solvency too has no history. Mm -hmm. They have no proof that it's going to work. It it, it isn't. 
It isn't um, favored by the European companies either. Um, they have, it's a very high standard for capital, which pulls capital out of the general economy that should be invested mm -hmm. or should be involved in, in supporting growth around the world. So we really do think that it, this fight is worth having from all standpoints. Mm -hmm. The other things that we should always point out, and our members know this, but I know when we talk about this in policy discussions, you know, we have differences in our system around rate regulation, for example, That's which right. is here in a very significant way and in other countries is almost doesn't exist, That's at least right. on the non-life, as they call PC side. Um, and then uh, guarantee funds. So we have a backstop for when insolvencies happen, and our system recognizes that they will happen. Right. And so, uh, again, there's not that similar uh, right. you know, process or protection in most other countries around the world. Right, and those are the kinds of tools that really do help protect consumers, and other countries don't focus as much on consumer protection as they do on investor and creditor protection. Which leads to the final distinction I would make, which is the legal entity versus group supervision. Our right. consumer protection-oriented system focuses on the legal entity that actually provides the contract with the policyholder. The group supervision is the way they do it in Europe anyway, where they're looking at more of the entire enterprise and they're more concerned with creditors and solvency mm -hmm. from an institutional perspective. And a consolidated kind right. of approach where in the U.S., and I think this is another feature that is much stronger, we have that legal entity view where we are looking at each individual entity and and instead of combining it all together and kind of creating some obfuscation of where the problem arises, the regulators can see all of the problems. And that's why we are in favor of internationally an aggregated approach to a group capital I was going to say, can you explain that a little bit? That kind of yeah. leads right into the our recommendation as we attempt to address what they have set out as a priority and we understand right. why, but uh, what is, how would you describe our recommendation there and where are we in the process? Well, our, our, our recommendation is that you look at each entity in, a, in an insurance group and you look at their RBC and then you combine those RBC amounts with all of the other entities in the insurance group. Now there are going to be some duplications that have to be removed and there are some improvements that are being considered to make um, to RBC to better um, assess the risk that is raised by non-insurance entities that are in the group and that is raised by international entities. And, the, and we are working on a means to do that in a very effective way. And so our approach we refer to as the aggregation method, sort of a bottom-up, you add them up from the bottom instead of a top-down just looking at the top view. Mm -hmm. And um, our regulators are in favor of this. The U.S. Treasury has recently spoken out in favor of this. Um, there has been a letter that was signed by 42 senators that has spoken in favor of this. And we feel like right now we're in the best position we've ever been in to represent a consolidated view from the U.S. about aggregation. <laughs> well, and also um, Fed Vice Chairman Quarles is now chairman of the FSB? Yes, he is chairman for the next three years. And this is going to be a significant time for us if we can use his role 
or involve him in his leadership role at the FSB in trying to at least exert influence over other FSB members to allow flexibility. We are not trying to say change the standard. What we are trying to do is say different ways of accomplishing a group capital calculation should be considered as, as e equally re relevant. Yeah. And let me just take a step back, and a lot of this has to do with the success you've had as our advocate, our primary uh, spokesperson for NAMIC members in these various forums where you have testified routinely um, at each meeting, I'm sure, maybe multiple times at meetings, and um, sometimes have had a fairly rough reception. <laughs> Uh, you talk about the U.S. regulatory system, or I did, being not the cool kid uh, because it's old and different. You know, our policy view has been an unpopular one for the last several years as you've been doing this. And I remember back, and I'd like to count this as just a success, you know, four or five years ago, I remember the, you know, international capital standards are a thing. Get in line. Yes. Don't give me your, yes. uh, you know, objections to it. Don't tell us how it doesn't yeah. work for you remember that? Yes, yes. In fact, my viewpoint on anything we tackle is that you cannot beat yourself by assuming that you're going to lose going into the debate. Which is too often yeah. the profile of so many of our good yeah. colleagues. Um, and, they and, play to lose yeah. and they negotiate away their own potential for success That's right. before you even have to begin negotiating. Well, you go back to the accounting um, insurance contract standard and we were told several times in that first year that we could not win, we could not defeat this at the... At the um, um, was it IES? Or? No, this was this was at um, ISB oh. and and FASB yeah, at the FASB. FASB right. Yes, and at the FASB, um, we were able to be very persuasive. International Accounting Standards Board. Right, and fi and the Financial Financial Accounting, accounting Standards, Standards Board. Board. Yeah, I was trying to think. U.S. About and international. That stood for. Right, right, and so um, and and that ended up being um, a, a big win for us, that FASB took account of the concerns that the, um, in the property casualty industry had about the direction they were going and how it would not fit, and that the, the existing gap and statutory approach made a lot more sense. We were able to get the investors on board as well, and we won that battle, even though we were told we would lose. I feel the same thing is happening here with the ICS, and, and really it, it incorporates some of those same problems and issues because valuation and accounting plays right into this, um, this calculation for the ICS. We will keep fighting. We won't give up, and I believe right now we're really positioned for the U.S. to either say, change it, be more flexible, accept our approach, or we're not going to, we're not going to comply. And if that happens, then the rest of the world will not look at this standard with any credibility. So I think they know that um, at the IAIS, and they want to keep fighting. They'll fight to the bitter end, but at this point, so will we. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, that may be a good part to end on. Uh, we could talk about this all day. It is very important, and you do such an exceptional job, Michelle. Well, thank you. Uh, in areas where you have no backup or support, uh, even the, the story of... Um, was it Kuala Lumpur yes, where the Italian, yes. and I hate to say yes. bring up his nationality because yeah. my father-in-law's name is Nunzio and Bridget, uh, my wife, they're all <laughs> Italian. We love Italy, but yeah. it was an Italian Person. gentleman mm -hmm. who, I don't know exactly what he said, but I know that when you got home, uh, you received many calls from our members who had either been there or heard about yeah. it. 
who were said, you know, he treated you so rudely, and I'm yes. so sorry, and you know, for you. So yeah, he was very smug, and he was very rude, and he acted like a teenager, probably, um, you know, not like a, an adult. And at the point um, we were making was perfectly valid that so much has changed in the world since we started this process and that a lot needed to be done differently and new and new factors needed to be considered and afterward I had many organizations as well come up to me and say we totally agree with you including Insurance Europe mm -hmm. and so from that standpoint I felt very strong that many of those organizations came to the table at the next opportunity um, to start making the same complaints I had made. Well, be assured going forward that when they lash out like that, it's because we're winning. Yes. And so <laughs> okay. thank you for winning on behalf of our members. I appreciate it. Thank you. On the next Unscripted, Chuck talks with former FBI special agent Chris Tarbell. Chris is one of the most successful cybersecurity law enforcement officials of all time. You'll hear about his exciting background taking down two of the world's most notorious cyber criminals, as well as his recommendations for insurers to keep their data secure. And that's a wrap for this episode of Insurance Uncovered. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast and we hope you'll keep tuning in as we return with more insurance news and information on July 10th. If you have a topic or issue you'd like us to uncover, don't hesitate to let us know. You can send us an email at uncovered at Until next time, I'm Kathy Imus. Have a great day.